Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here on uh, Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR and in the studio with me is Fiona. G'day, Fiona. How are you? Good morning, Annie. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, even despite the fact that it poured with rain before we came here. Strange tropical weather out there. It's a bit of rain and a bit of muggy humidity. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, It's quite extraordinary. Um, Well, today we've got uh, pieces uh, of, well, I went off to the um, Peter Norman Social Justice Forum that happened on Tuesday, and uh, it's the 50th anniversary. It was held on the 50th anniversary of uh, that salute at the 1968 Olympics. If you aren't uh, aware of Peter Norman, uh, Peter Norman was the uh, Australian who ran the 200 metres and came surprisingly to all concerned second in the race it was the uh, race where uh, two black americans one came first one came third stood on the podium and uh, what was sometimes called, thought to be the black power salute they bowed their heads and uh, put their hands up gloved hands up in a salute which was actually the human rights salute it caused a huge furore and uh the Peter Norman uh, stood there in solidarity, and uh, that's what he his famous saying: "I'll stand with you." He stood there with the uh, uh, the uh, a badge of um, insignia that uh, called for human rights. It, this was for uh, bringing to the attention of the world the uh, plight of uh, Black Americans in their own country, uh, and. Uh, as they talked about at the social forum, the ripples are still being felt. Uh, interestingly enough, Peter Norman's record for that uh, race has never, it, as an Australian record, it hasn't been broken. So there you go. Uh, quite an extraordinary feat. Uh, and um, But he uh, re- didn't uh, receive much uh, uh, encouragement by the Olympic Committee from then on, even though in America... The uh, um, they have a Peter Norman Day. They celebrate Peter Norman Day, and um, so it's the, not a public holiday, is it? No, no, it's not a public holiday, but it's an important uh, day for to to commemorate and to commemorate him. They hold him in great honour, mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting that uh, it may be news to you that uh, Athletics Australia have decided. Um, that they're going to now uh, build a, a, a 
have a bronze statue to Peter Norman down at Albert Park. It's, it's taken 50 years, but finally someone's mm. decided to do a, rec- a public uh, mainstream recognition of Peter Norman. But uh, the Social Justice Forum was much more about, um, well, commemorating him, but also commemorating the uh, the notion that people contribute their skills to making a better world. And um, so there were a whole range of speakers who came. And the first one, the first cab off the rank was uh, Robert D. Costello, the uh, famous Australian long-distance runner, marathon runner. And uh, different people have asked me to play the various speeches and we're going to play uh, different ones over over the next few weeks. And so the first one we'll hear is Robert D. Costello. Yeah, so we'll, let's kick off with that. Uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone, and, and thank you. Joe for the opportunity to come and say a few words. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge Arnie Caroline who is uh, headed off but uh, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners and the local people of this land and uh, it's been an amazing journey that I've been on over the last 10 years or so. I grew up here in Melbourne used to do so much of my running around around this area, around the gardens and around the botanic gardens and the tan and everything. Um, but as a as a uh, a white fella from Melbourne, I don't think I ever met an Aboriginal person. I had a tremendous education, went to a Jesuit school, went to Xavier College. Uh, As I travelled the world as an athlete, racing against the best athletes in the world, I spent more time with the Africans than I did with our own Indigenous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. And it wasn't until really I started the project, the Indigenous Marathon Foundation, back in 2010, that uh, I was confronted with the reality that exists within our own backyard with our, our Indigenous people. Uh, the reality of the struggle, the reality of the marginalisation, uh, the reality of the health issues. And um, originally I started our foundation to see whether we could find an elite distance runner, to see whether Indigenous Australians, given the background in hunting and gathering and, and travelling across this continent by foot for tens of thousands of years, whether they had similar, similar physiological distance running abilities that the great African athletes have. And uh, you look at the sporting success in AFL and the other footy codes and so many other sporting arenas and you think, well, there's an incredible natural ability, natural sporting ability, and determination to, to achieve and to succeed. But we'd never had an endurance athlete. So back in 2010, I started this little project to see whether we could find some indigenous distance runners. Travelled around through the Northern Territory and up through the Kimberleys. And that was when I was confronted with the reality. I heard about the gap Everyone knows about the health and the social issues. 
But when you're actually out there in the communities and you actually see it firsthand, you see the grog, you see the fighting, you see the dysfunction, you see the obesity, you see the sedentary living. Uh, it's incredibly disturbing. You know, I'm a proud Australian. I've represented this country at four Olympic Games and I've stood on the victory dais as our national anthems played and the flag is hoisted up high. But then to travel around the backyard of Australia and even the front yard and to see the issues, to see the problems, I was, I was ashamed as an Australian to think that here in our own country we have these issues. So I thought, well, you know, sort of... Um, what can I do about it? Well, maybe we can find a superstar, you know, another Kathy Freeman of the middle distance or distance running. And uh, I worked with four Aboriginal men, two fellows from Alice Springs, one from Kununurra in the Kimberleys and another one from a little community up in Arnhem Land called Mamangarita. And I got to meet them. I travelled out to their communities. I spent time with their families. And I, I saw that struggle. But what upset me the most wasn't that superficial health and social issues. What upset me and disturbed me the most was that there was a, a culture of hopelessness. What I felt and what I saw was an attitude of, why bother? Why should I bother getting up in the morning and going to school? Why should I bother getting off the smokes? Why should I bother getting a job? There's nothing, nothing here in this country for me. I have no dreams, I have no aspirations. And without the courage to dream, without the courage to pursue your dreams, without having aspirations, without having self-belief and hope, then you're just a, just a husk, just a shell of a person with no spirit, no soul. And that was incredibly disturbing because I thought, well, where do we go as a nation? As a nation, we're spending millions and millions of dollars putting in services all around the country to try to address a lot of these, these issues. But without healing that fundamental issue that resides within the hearts and souls of Indigenous people, it's all just superficial. Nothing will actually build on because there's no foundations, there's no structure to build it on. I worked with those four young fellas and uh, they had incredible struggle. The marathon is one of the hardest things you can do. The marathon epitomises endurance, it epitomises struggle, it epitomises the achievement and the effort. Heavens above, the whole event is, is built on the run of Pheidippides in 490 BC who gave his life for his people. The marathon is an acknowledgement of that struggle and sacrifice. And now around the world the marathon is so incredibly popular because we as a people need to be challenged. We need to have opportunities to find out who we really are. We need to have opportunities to test ourselves because it's only in those, those moments of testing that we find out who we really are. We find out the substance of the character and the people that we are. I stood on the finish line in Central Park in 2010, having been told by so many Australians that I was setting these four fellows up to fail. There was no way that they will finish. None of them had done the training. Normally to run a marathon, you'll train for four years 
and you go through leading up all the short races, 10Ks, half marathons, and eventually when you're confident and you've done the training, you go to the starting line of a marathon. Those fellows went from no running, they didn't even know what a marathon was, they had no idea that there was an event called distance running or fun runs. They were footy players and they were passionate about their sport and their footy, but had no interest in running. So standing on the starting line in New York, I asked them, why are you here? Why have you come all the way over here to New York to do something that no Aboriginal person had ever done before? to do something that you know is going to be one of the hardest things you've ever done, knowing that you've had huge issues and, and, issue and problems in your preparation. I took each of those fellows away from the other three and asked them that question. And every single one of them gave me exactly the same answer. I'm here for my family. I knew that there was a big risk that they wouldn't finish. So I got $20, 20 US dollars, and I'd folded it up and stuck it under the inner sole of their shoe. I had a, a black marker, and I wrote the name of the hotel that we were staying on, on the back of their number, and wrote the mobile phone number that we had, and I said, look, if you guys break down, if you just can't keep on going, stop, call us, get one of the spectators, one and a half million spectators line the course of the New York City Marathon. Give us a call, let us know where you are, use that money to jump in a cab and we'll come and meet you. And that was my risk management plan to see whether we could back up, have a, have a, a backup plan in case things didn't go right. But after I asked these fellows why they were here, it wasn't about a free trip to New York, it wasn't about running a marathon. They were representing their family and they had a duty and they had an obligation to finish what they started. Every single one of those fellows looked me in the eye and I could tell that there was no way that they were not going to finish. And with that black marker, I wrote family on the back of their hand and said, before you use that $20, look down at the back of your hand and remember why you're here. And for me to stand on the finish line when each one of those four fellows, despite all of the odds, despite all of the issues and the setbacks, when each one of those four fellows didn't just run across the line, they bounced across the line, having run twice as far as they'd ever run before in their lives. The sense of pride that I saw exude from them made me realise that we had an opportunity to instil a sense of self-belief and pride within our Indigenous people far beyond, far more important than just finding a fast runner. And that was the foundation for us to establish the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. It was an opportunity for me over the last decade to travel this country and to be immersed and to listen and to see and to be included in so much of our Indigenous culture. We as a, as a, a nation are so privileged to have a beautiful, rich Indigenous culture and we have to find ways to, to celebrate, we have to find ways to uh, create an opportunity for us as a nation to be proud of our Indigenous culture. Whilst ever we talk about the gap and the closing the gap and the health issues and the social issues and the incarceration and all these things, which we need to talk about because we need to resolve them, but whenever we talk about them, there's a tendency for us to normalise them. 
And the danger is that as they become more normalised, then that becomes the expectation, that becomes the benchmark. And I was talking at a function a couple of years ago at a PwC, big accounting firm up in Sydney, and uh, this girl came over afterwards, and she was an Indigenous trainee at this accounting company. And she said, you know, sometimes I don't feel entitled to call myself Indigenous because I, I've had a good life. I haven't been through all of the struggle. How can I be Indigenous if I haven't had all of that struggle and dysfunction that everyone else talks about? How sad is that when your identity becomes entwined in the negative? So we need to find ways to, to break that cycle. Over the last eight years, we've now taken 75 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to finish a major international marathon, which is good. It's what they do afterwards when they come back, which is great. Giving them the courage, the realisation, the profile, the speaking skills and ability, the, the, the confidence and the expectation that we have in them to step up and make a difference is what our foundation really stands for. Look, I'm really proud to be here on this occasion. I'm really proud to be able to acknowledge Peter Norman, what he did in the 68 Olympics, as other speakers have said, has sent shockwaves through human rights, through this country and around the world. You know, sport provides us with this incredible platform. It provides us with an opportunity to reflect, to consider our views and our attitudes, our behaviours and our beliefs. And how special is that? You look at some of the other great moments in sport. Kathy Freeman's victory in the Sydney Olympics, the image of Kathy with the Aboriginal flag and the Australian flag held proud and high. What a symbolic gesture and an important message that was. You look at other things around the world, Nelson Mandela at the 1995 World Cup final battling apartheid, being imprisoned, his whole background and his story, putting on the Springbok jersey. The Springbok jersey which stood for white supremacy in South Africa. And here was this black man who had been through so much, pulling on this jersey and demonstrating the, the unity, the humanity, the opportunity the sport pro provides to actually make a symbol and, uh, and make a strong and powerful sta statement I certainly denounce violence in sport. The massacre in Munich is unforgivable. I was on the finish line in the Boston Marathon in 2012 when those terrorists let off those bombs and killed spectators and maimed people running and, and there. I was only a few hundred metres away from it and we had one of our Aboriginal girls who was at the 40k mark, two kilometres from the finish when those bombs went off. Never had an opportunity. She'd, the longest she'd run was 30k, so she'd already run 40 and never got an opportunity to run across that finish line. The, you know, sport does provide a platform for some of these horrific and terrible things to be done. I was involved as a young fella in the 1980 and 1984 Olympics when, when the boycotts were full in, in fledge, when our political leaders tried to use sport as a as a platform, using the athletes as pawns and tools.
to make political statements. So I denounced those use of sport in those sorts of occasions. But I absolutely acknowledge the power and the importance of sport to showcase the richness and the beauty of our humanity. The importance of sport to promote health. When we have an epidemic of obesity and sedentary life, an epidemic of mental health issues, we know that sport, physical activity, has a vital role to play in addressing all of those things. You know, we create heroes. We create Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island heroes. Average, young, 18 to 30 year olds, who've put up their hand and said, I've had enough. Things have got to change. Every year in our foundation, we have about 150 applicants from right across the country, from tiny little remote communities to country towns and regions to the major cities. These young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have put up their hand to do something that they know is going to be incredibly hard. Because not doing something is harder still. Continuing to allow the situation to perpetuate is not an option. These young men and women have had a gutful and they want things to change. They want to step up, they want to make a future for their children, for their nephews and their nieces, for their communities and for the country better than what it is. So we take them so far outside their comfort zone. Running a marathon in six months from no running is, is ridiculous. Doing it, we've had one fellow a couple of years ago, 155 kilos, we selected him. Out of the 150 applicants, we chose him. Because it wasn't, he couldn't run more than one kilometre when we, when we identified him in March. In November, he ran 42 kilometres non-stop. And in that journey, had lost over 30 kilos. Came back from New York, lives up in Redfern, started his own running group, deadly running group up there. And now he's got a whole group of Aboriginal and Island people up there who he's mentoring and coaching and supporting on that journey to look after themselves, but to give them the realisation that they are strong, that they have this strength and this re resilience to endure and this capacity to inspire and achieve. Our motto is run, sweat, inspire. Running is simple. You need no equipment. You need no facilities. Running is what man has done forever. It is our ability to long run, run long distance that has a, a allowed man to become the dom dominant animal on this planet. We are the best hunters and, and gatherers and trackers of any animal on this planet. Sweating is hard work. You achieve nothing of significance without hard work and sweat. Running a marathon is hard. But the inspire is what you do when you achieve something that's hard. When you cross that finish line of your first marathon, you'll forever be a different person. Because enduring hardship makes us strong. It tests our spirit, it builds our spirit and tests our character. So we run, we sweat, we inspire. And we send those ripples that Peter was talking about across the, the pond to inspire others. So today I'm really pleased to be able to come here and honour Peter, uh, honour sport as a platform, as a vehicle to raise awareness and drive change and address really fundamental issues that we have. 
and we still continue to have so many significant issues within Australia, around the world and within our own Indigenous population. So I choose to say enough is enough. I choose to have the courage and I choose to find others to bring on that journey and mentor so that we can make a better life, a better future, a better country for our next generations. Thank you. That was Les Thomas singing his uh, tribute to Peter Norman on the Peter Norman Social Justice Forum that happened last Tuesday. And we were just listening to Robert D. Costello, who was talking about his contribution to making a better world using his skills, which was really uh, 
the crux of what was going on on that day, where the ripples of uh, Peter Norman, I will stand with you, uh, statement, uh, the real uh, uh, message that came out of that day. It was a really interesting day. It was a really interesting day. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Fiona. And Fiona, you, you went off to see here and talk to people. What, what was the event you went to? It was a fe- feminist event um, called The Unfinished Feminist Revolution, uh, looking at the Me Too movement and the Forgotten Women. Um, it was run by La Trobe University, so they have um, a series of public lectures that happen throughout the year. Um, so this one was focused on feminism. That There were two speakers, Jane Caro, who is a fairly um, prolific uh, columnist um, on issues of feminism and education, and Anne Mann, who um, has written several books, um, on, in particular on this issue of the universal care regime. So um, I was struck by Anne Mann and her thoughts um, uh, on how um, the rise of neoliberalism has placed so much emphasis on um, the, the value of people who work and who are part of the workforce and therefore all those people who are not part of the workforce because they're caring for others, whether it be for children or um, disabled family members or the elderly, um, they're kind of stigmatised um, because they're not of value to the to the economy. Um, and she she's arguing for um, a raft of changes um, in the way, really in the in the way that we um, look at care in our society. Because unpaid work, according to her, accounts for unpaid labour of care care labour accounts for forty three percent of GDP. So it's huge to the economy. <laughs> it's massive. Um, and she was um, her, her universal care regime puts forward this idea of a universal basic income for people who um, are carers, um, and therefore they're not discriminated because they're not part of the workforce, but they're still doing really important work. Um, and uh, she argues that care should be should be valued in our society as something um, that uh, enriches. It becomes a point of honour. It, it, it enriches your humanity, and um, it's, it's a worthwhile endeavour, and not something to be ashamed of. Uh, so um, let's have a listen. Both of us at the same time have been growing increasingly concerned about what happens to um, partly older women but also single mothers. And I think it's, it's often not realised that at the very t- same uh, moment that Julia Gillard wrote, uh, spoke such a brilliant speech on misogyny, um, she passed an act which pushed single mothers off parenting payment which allowed them to survive just um, if their child um, uh, had turned uh, six and they then had to, uh, to find work. And I don't think it's really understood exactly what poverty they were plunged into um, by a wide uh, group of people. And the fact that um, increasing rates of homelessness, so that we have sort of on the one hand one, young mothers, uh, but we also have um, older women who perhaps have left the workforce, just like Emma May Martin, to look after an elderly father who has Alzheimer's, they have children, they have a chequered work history. So all of it happened at the same time as Australia made this great leap forward into neoliberalism. And I was really struck by Naomi Klein's book called This Changes Everything. She's talking about the problems of getting climate change, climate change remedy when it's leave it to the market and um, the kind of policies you have where um, governments are not meant to, to interfere. And in this case, this changes everything. I think 
applies to the fact that at the same time as we had neoliberalism, the feminist movement was coming forward, also emphasising paid work. Mm. But people have been slow to realise that there's a different agenda going on and that the one is about social justice and giving women more opportunities, but the other is about things like demography, about things like uh, especially reducing the welfare roles and reducing um, cutting tax for business and therefore have to cut government expenditure. It's like a perfect storm. Basically, um, uh, I've just um, written that book, which in my bio has the title it was going to have, but it's now not going to have. It's called Accidental Feminists Now. And um, this was, came out of my concern about the fact that I came across this horrifying thing, which you've probably all heard now, um, that the fastest growing group amongst the homeless is women over 55. And basically, the story, the typical story of why that occurs is that a woman um, of my, of our age, was brought up in one kind of generation as a child and young person, expecting that they would be looked after the way that women always have been. You work, you know, you did your schooling, you weren't necessarily encouraged to go on to university unless you had quite an unusual family when I was a girl because um, you were going to get married and have children, so it was a bit of a waste of time, really. You know, that's what women did. And so they didn't get high skills, they worked for a while, met some bloke, got married, had kids, men to live happily ever after. Then, of course, the feminist revolution happened. Um, they started to be able to leave lousy marriages more easily, perhaps did go into the workforce in part-time, low-paid, around children's hours, work. Um, then maybe there was a divorce. Um, until 2002, there was no superannuation splitting laws, so the man's superannuation was his. She was often left with um, maybe the house, custody of the kids. Um, then she works for a bit more than an ageing aging parents, so she comes out of the workforce again to look after ageing parents. So by this time, there's very little super. She's got no savings. She's living week to week. Then the average age of retirement retirement, I don't think necessarily it's voluntary most of the time for women, is 52. 52. Now, the old age pension doesn't kick in if you were born after the 1st of January 57, like me, until you're 67. Women over 50 have a terrible time getting another job. If they lose their job, they are the last people who are likely to be desirable in terms of uh, another uh, paying job. So what happens to them? Well, a lot of them sell the house because that's the only answer they've got. And of course, then they start living on the capital. They're on New Start, perhaps, which Tim Wilson on Q&A described helpfully in neoliberal terms as being not a hammock. Imagine letting people lie around on a hammock, but a trampoline. So it's kept deliberately, though, you see, to work as an incentive to get people to leap off it into a new grid. Which might be arguable if you're a youngish person. Not really arguable even then, but let's just give him the benefit of doubt for that. But if you're over 50 and you're female, if you're over 50 and you're male, but if you're over 50 and you're female, you, you're just leaping off that trampoline into thin air. There's nowhere to land. Um, and so you are living on the new start, which I think 
I'm really bad at remembering numbers, but if I'm correct, I think it's about $580 a fortnight. Anglicare did a, um, they do a snapshot every year where they look at rent, all the rental properties that are available on one night in Australia, around the entire country. They did it, it's in March, I can't remember the exact date, but they did it in March 2018. They went around the entire country, looked at every rental property, and they were looking for rental properties that were affordable for people who were on New Start or Youth Allowance. And in the whole of Australia, they found three. Three. And we wonder why so many people are facing homelessness. Well, we've set it up so that they will. And what absolutely makes me irate, and it's the same as women taking on the burden and the shame of someone else's bad behaviour, is that the women of, who are finding themselves in this situation at the end of their own life are there because they did what they were told to do, which was to put caring for others ahead of their own needs. That's what they were trained to do. That was your job. You're a woman. You're a nurturer. That's your job. And so they did what they were taught. They were the good girls. They weren't stroppy me who said to my husband, sod you, I'm going to work. You know, well, my, you know, you mind the kids as much as I do. You had half of hand in it. And if I recall correctly, it was the fun half. Um, and, uh, you know, I was the bad girl. They were the good girls who did what they were told. And they put their care and responsibilities first. And they, it was an absolute crock of shit. They were left high and dry. And now that they need our care, what's the neoliberal attitude to them? Clarence Thomas. Oh, you're a loser, welfare-dependent bludger. Get on that trampoline, honey. Jump your heart out. I just, I can't uh, begin to tell you how incandescent with rage I am about... The fact that these women were told, you look after us and we'll reward you by looking after you all your life. They lied. I think they've always lied about that. But often these women have, have actually been in the workforce. Oh, they've all been in the workforce. workforce. But, but the, you know, the essence of the neoliberal hope, the neoliberal idea, is that everybody should be self-sufficient economically. Everybody that's a, a sociologist um, and all of calls it the, um, the breadwinner, universal breadwinner regime. So we're all meant to be breadwinners. And that's all very well. And many women enjoy being breadwinners. Many women enjoy um, careers and work and all of that, of course. But the fact is, the planning, the thinking, never factored in uh, the nature of care. They never factored in, factored in the times when care actually becomes... Uh, all-consuming, a small infant, a very small child, breastfeeding, for example. It never factored in, factors in uh, when you decide to care for a parent with Alzheimer's. We have at the moment lots of scandals going on about, and rightly brought to our attention, as to what can happen in a nursing home, how bad they can be, these fragile old people um, being treated in the most horrible way. But it's not just a matter of seeing this silo where care is not taken account of, um, or this one. It's actually right across the board. Neoliberalism has a problem with care. And so you can't actually create a system where everybody is expected all of the time to be a breadwinner. There's actually something else here too. I'm sure all of you would have heard of the idea of a 
economic free rider. That means, um, as the Americans call them, the welfare queen, who is allegedly sitting back by, I don't know, the swimming pool, filing her nails. Um, Birthing multiple children to get in the air. You start checking. But whatever the case, that though the idea is that that person is a parasite or is a, a free rider on the hard work of everybody else. But if you flip that on its head, the whole of the Australian nation is dependent upon women's unpaid labour. Not entirely women, because men actually they are doing increasing proportion. But more female labour than anyone else. This is Irie Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Hello, George. How are you? Very well, thank you. And how are you? Good. Now, we're talking to George uh, Zangalis. Is that how it's said? Zangalis? Oh, yeah. Zangalis will do, but Zangalis. Uh, we're one with issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a lovely name. Any name that starts with Z is a great name. Uh, and you're from Fairgo for Pensioners. We've got uh, Fiona and Annie here in the studio, and we want to talk to you about what Fairgo for Pensioners are going to be doing leading up to the Victorian election. Well, uh, well, bearing the barricades, uh, in, in the immediate sense, uh, groups of pensioners will be visiting the electoral offices of uh, uh, many politicians uh, whom, uh, who circulated some time ago with a letter on our demands, uh, wanting answers and pressing for our claims. And the claims uh, to the state government... Uh, has to do with uh, concessions for the rocketing uh, rises in, on gas, electricity, water, municipal rates, uh, transport, etc. The state government uh, some years ago established a level of concessions. Uh, however, for the last 10 years, there's been no movement at all. And we all understand uh, what's happening with the cost of living and how the most vulnerable uh, in our society, pensioners who depend entirely on uh, government pensions, uh, I found it uh, extremely difficult to make ends meet. Uh, and uh, we are taking the campaign to uh, uh, electoral offices uh, of uh, as many as possible politicians we can. At the same time, uh, we are working with other organizations uh, to increase pressure on the government and the opposition to give attention to our claims. Uh, our claims are not uh, new in that respect. They've been around for quite a while. But budget after budget, the state governments have failed to address uh, those burning issues for for pensioners. Uh, on this particular time, we do expect better results. Uh, uh, both government and opposition now proclaim that Victoria has never had it better. And we tend to agree with it. Uh, and uh, this is the time where pensioners uh, uh, have an urgent need, indeed, uh, uh, and a great expectation not to be left out in the cold. Now, of course, moral appeals don't travel very far unless they're backed up by action. And this is a sort of action we uh, will take in addition to uh, a number of other activities we've been involved 
throughout the year. Fair go for patients is exactly what it means. Uh, and uh, we are mobilizing our people uh, to be active in view of the coming elections, but also you appreciate any time we have a federal election. And we're also preparing uh, our campaigning to address uh, the federal issue as well, particularly the amount of pension given to, to pensioners, uh, less than 27% of the average weekly earnings, one of the lowest in the world, and uh, it has only increased uh, in, 19, uh, sorry, in 2013 uh, by 1% from 26 to 27%. But since then, we all know what happens with the cost of living and uh, uh, how difficult patients and other people, depending on Social Security payments, uh, uh, find life uh, to, to meet their very urgent uh, needs. George, so George are you, um, have you been getting uh, any positive reaction from any of these politicians that you've been pushing the door on? Well, uh, we did write to all of them uh, about uh, five or six weeks ago. We get uh, some responses and acknowledgements for about 20, 25 of them, some of quite typical that uh, yes, we received it, we're paying attention to it. Uh, some were a bit encouraging, but we don't believe uh, we really made it a bigger issue, and that's why now we decided to to take uh, our claims straight to their electoral offices with the groups of pensioners uh, visiting them uh, and having little demos, if you like, outside the office uh, or deputations inside. Uh, and give publicity as much as we possibly can. Uh, the, I think about, from what I understand, uh, and having participated in some discussions with, uh, with a few politicians and ministers, uh, we begin to make a bit of a, uh impact, but we need to top it up with the kind of activity I've just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, because um, pensioners, uh, and we're not just talking about old age pensioners, we're talking about pensioners across the board, are a sizable voting block, aren't they? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And we, with the letter we wrote to the politicians, we said uh, your response or lack of response uh, will be made known to our constituency, far and wide, to make up their minds of how they're going to vote in the next election, as well as the organisation itself. The fair goal patient is, uh, is made up, as you very well know, from... Uh, many groups are uh, retired union members, uh, community people, and individuals. Uh, uh, we do have considerable capacity. Uh, we are the only pension organization that uh, fights on the ground, uh, grassroots demonstrations, activities, etc. And uh, we we believe we we are a force to be recognized with. But like anybody else, uh, we want to make uh, claims. Uh, uh, much more present and uh, recognizable uh, by those who seek a re-election uh, on the 24th of November. Yeah, well, but not only 24th of November. You're going to be, you you, and probably many of your members will be there on uh, uh, October the 25th for the big rally, mass rally. 
well, exactly we issued a, a, an appeal to all our members and our supporters uh, to join the rally on the 23rd. Oh, 23rd, uh, yeah, sorry, 23rd. 23rd, next, next Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday 10.30, outside Victoria uh, Trades Hall. Uh, outside the Trades Hall. For the demands of the trade union women are, are also very much uh, part and parcel of our own overall uh, uh, ethical, political and social position. We want to see uh, workers increase, uh, get a, uh, an increase in their wages. We want to see workers being able to, through unions, uh, to campaign, enter the workplaces. We want to see security and safety of the job. We want to see equal pay. We want to see penalty rates maintained. We want to see workers are not uh, forced to work till uh, 70 before they can get their pension. Uh, and, and, and so many other things we have in common. And uh, through this program, again, we appeal to, to pensioners, their friends and their families uh, to join the rally. And uh, obviously, uh, a request uh, we are making as far as the particular pensioner names are concerned from the state government. Uh, we are asking our members uh, to contact us and indicate their support to participate in those groups that will be visiting the politicians in their uh, local offices. How do they get in contact with you, George? Well, we do have an address. Uh, we operate care of the Metal Workers Union, uh, but also the telephone numbers uh, people can contact. Uh, and I don't mind giving my number. Uh, oh, well, zero. no, probably it's best if, uh, I don't know, if people have got... Well, uh, well, uh, well that's okay, but uh, we are contactable care of the Metal Workers Union. Yeah, and also you've got a um, online presence. So we've, got, we've got our own online uh, information. People can uh, catch up with us. Uh, fair go for patients coalition uh, is easily found in our website. Well, um... We'll see you there on Tuesday, so doff your hat. Well, uh, there'll be so many of us whether you'll see me, and I'll <laughs> see you personally, I doubt it. But uh, we all expect to be a massive demonstration. Yeah. It deserves to be so, and uh, the general community recognition, uh, wages have been stagnating, falling behind the cost of living, and even some of the uh, capitalists uh, saying uh, a wage increase... Uh, it does help the nation, but on the other hand, uh, do exactly the opposite. So th- there is a general recognition. The time is well past to change the rules and uh, for a wage rise and also for a minimum wage that is no longer uh, conform to the standards established a century ago, but uh, what it takes now for an average person to leave. So there is need to, to for, for considerable... Uh, review of what makes uh, a minimum living sta- uh, standards and uh, particularly for correcting the balance between the influence that uh, the employers have uh, uh, on uh, matters relating to industrial relations uh, and the unions. Everybody agrees the balance is tipped over the years in favor of the employers. Uh, in those arbitration committees and commissions, and uh, that again needs to be looked at. Uh, and and the Western Bureau, the, the right to strike, still is illegal in Australia. 
uh, while we subscribe to Channels for Human Rights, and that's a fundamental right. Employers now won't threaten people who are likely to want to take part in the rally on Sunday or on Tuesday that will be penalized either by loss of pay or by putting a black spot in their in their file. Now this is horrible, this is unacceptable and uh, it's gonna be condemned for what it is uh, uh, intimidation and we do expect uh, uh, thousands to be on the rally and obviously uh, we expect uh, as many pensioners as possible to be part and be prominent in that rally next Tuesday. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning, George. My pleasure. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when last week we left U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the paw, declaring he would bomb evil Iran into the ground until he discovered it was his very, very, very close friend Saudi, and therefore he needed more information. And then this week, Donald thought maybe he should say if the more information showed the Saudi Democrats had had a bit to do with the murder, the U.S. of would respond with harsh measures. Uh, like denying then the billions of dollars of train killer merchants of death merchandise they buy off the U.S. of? Uh, no, we cannot do that because that would hurt those great U.S. of merchants of death companies, great companies, great lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy. Uh, so what harsh measures do you have in mind? You'll have to wait and see. We'll see. We'll see. But I could ring my very, very close friend, the Crown Prince, and, and tell him we oppose going around the world killing people we don't like. And then Donald did ring the Crown Prince, who told him he too opposed going around the world and killing people we don't like, which with these two great friends are mostly the same people. And the pair of liberty, freedom and democracy lovers bemoaned that on the one hand they had been forced to send train killer ships to the Chinese coast to contain China's aggression at wanting to sail in those waters, and on the other hand being forced to convert Yemen into the most ignored, devastated, miserable, terrifying spot on the planet. And Donald's next unequivocal principled explanation via the Crown Prince is that some rogue assassins infiltrated the embassy. And Donald would hit those rogue assassins with the, with the harshest measures ever for embarrassing his very, very close friend, the Crown Prince. And this explanation is the most plausible because the Saudi embassy would be a soda to infiltrate for any self-respecting rogue assassin, especially on the very day a bad guy dissident had been invited in for a chat and a bit of murder. Security would be almost non-existent, and let's face it, after a lifetime in business trampled the poor style, Donald of all people would know a rogue when he saw one. Why, he probably shaves every morning, making it hard to believe that no one seems to believe this version. And anyway, Saudi has promised to conduct a full investigation into itself, which should sort it out. Then Donald highlighted the most pertinent point of all. If the U.S. Arb didn't flog those billions of merchants of death merchandise, someone else would. Some bad guy someone else would. And we commented last week on Nikki, hail to the good guys, hell to the bad guys, sad departure from the U.N. of the U.S. of the U.N. of the world. Let's repeat, won't we miss her?
I raise this because Donald and Nikki's balanced views on the world they rule are also axiomatically True Blue Aussie's very own independent foreign policy, thus the necessity for True Blue Aussie to relocate our Zion embassy to Jerusalem and recognise Jerusalem as the capital of Zion and of all the lands Zion occupies to ensure the security of Zion. Lands that belong to nobody because the people who live there are nobody, stateless non-people who, being stateless and non-people, have no right to live anywhere. And Zion is doing its best to sort that land-grabbing international crime out. And Scuttlebem also promised True Blue Aussie would support the nuclear agreement with evil, evil Iran being torn up because evil, evil Iran had rendered the agreement null and void by observing it. But Donald and Nicky and Scuttledem and his Zion advisor David Chalmer all promise US the all promise us the US ARB and therefore True Blue Aussie policy will not prevent a two state solution. A two-state solution, Scuttlebem. Certainly, there's the US of, and there's Zion. Uh, and, and, and what about the Palestinians? Uh, what about the Palestinians? Some cynics suggested, well, more than suggested, asserted Scuttlebem had pulled the policy out of his bag of tricks because of the substantial number of assumed Zion supporters in the electorate Zion advisor David is contesting. A ridiculous claim, Scuttlebem immediately scuttled, denied. And so there's obviously no truth in the suggestion, because like Donald, Scuttlebem is big supremo and would never mislead people, to put it nicely. But sadly, like everything else, everything else he touches, he had barely stated his new policy that it turned to human excrement, leaving poor Scuttlebem flat on his back trying to foot-juggle David, the electorate, Donald, Nicky, Zion, Big Supremo, Benjamin, not another Yahoo, Indonesia and other people's business, trade deals with Islamic regimes, general cynicism with no success whatever, a total disaster, ending up covered in a putrid pile of the numerous items he had been juggling, well, trying to juggle, including all that excrement into which his policy had transmogrified. Interesting, the Caring Business Class Party has warned voters in former Big Supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull's former very, very, very safe blue ribbon seat. Zion advisor David is contesting that it needs to win to maintain its majority because if the, in parenthesis, independent good doctor wins, it will wait for it, maintain its majority. It's kind of Caring Business Class endorsed versus Caring Business Class not endorsed. And we can be sure if she does win, scuttle them once he's cleaned himself up from the juggling disaster and the team will survive her concerns for climate change if there is such a thing as climate change survive with the help of the socialists and on our concentration camps raise a wire and sink the boats policy with the help of the socialists who share the policy other than the socialists promising to torture those seeking refuge with compassion our older listener will remember back with back when the other Malcolm, Malcolm Wage Freezer, was big supremo and his big economic guru, the sadly lamented Philip Lynch, the workers, warned no government could survive if the unemployment rate ever reached 5%. Well, Thursday they announced it had reached 5% coming down. And this was great news for the government because 5% now means full employment. 
no, no, can't work that one out either, listener. But we can be sure the 5% whooping it up on their exorbitant dole payments will be thrilled to hear they're fully employed. And some commentators said full employment, with only a few million now fully employed unemployed, could lead to the slow wages growth caring employers are all so concerned about being less slow. And caring employers were forced to warn that they may not quite be the case, or that may not quite be the case. And the International Monetary Fund this week said Trublowozzi's economy was one of the very strongest in the world, leading some naive commentators to speculate this could lead to the slow wages growth caring employers are also concerned about being less slow. And caring employers were forced to warn that that may not quite be the case. And the Trublowozzi Business Profits Council was forced to warn it is naive to think that record corporate profits would lead to higher wages, to the slow wages growth they're also concerned about being not so slow, because there's no relationship whatever between profits and wages, because it's good for all of us if profits go up by zillions and bad for all of us if wages go up at all. Well, to be fair, the caring employers said wages must be tied to productivity, not profits. And workers needed to be much, much more productive if they wanted to counter slow wages growth, which keeps caring employers tossing and turning all night, presumably in case it stops being slow. But if the lazy, avaricious workers had pulled their fingers out and become more productive, imagine how record, record those record profits would have been. And it's only the workers' own fault, own sloth, that they can't share in all that wealth. And then if they did become more productive, then clearly the next step would be to become more productive. I keep saying I don't know why caring employers bother to employ workers at all. They're such a drag on the economy. It's clearly just the goodness of their big, big hearts. But one caring employer I must be oh so slightly critical of, or grammatically of whom I must, but never mind, far be it for this segment to criticise Lord Rupert of Wapping's invaluable contributions to bringing us all the news that needs to, well, more more accurately, all the news Lord Rupert thinks we need to know. Fashion weeks, cup weeks, a couple of newlyweds announcing a new hungry little mouth for the British taxpayer to feed in the luxury to which that lot are accustomed. The big news... But a headline this week in Lord Rupert's Whopping Sin. Crooks grab $47 billion. Organised crime costing us $1,900 per person. Half-page story. But no mention of banks, insurance companies, retail super funds. Well, a long, long list of crooks. Organised state-supported crime. Not a mention. Come on, Lord Rupert, lift your game. On non-retail super... Poor, poor Kelly Oda, why are workers so evil? Her plan to nail them exploding in her face like Scuttlebem's policies, leading one of our favourites, Trublowozzi Industry Profits Group's Innes will cost the workers to declare industry super funds must not be used by evil unions for ideological purposes. After an evil union boss suggested the fund should not invest in companies that rip off workers. The assumption being there might be companies that rip off workers. There is a place to discuss those things because in us would abhor caring employers ripping off, other than the mere act of employment, ripping off, but not on super boards in us advised wisely. 
Finally, let's have a long discussion about those newlyweds winning all our hearts while he kicks off the trained killer games. Not sure if they're wary swastika or not, but isn't it so... Sorry, Annie, what was that? Time's up. But, but I haven't discussed the week's biggest news. Ah, oh, good morning. You're listening to 3CR, 855am, the voice of the community. Yeah, that's right, you are, and it's Solidarity Breakfast, and we're just about to talk to Humphrey McQueen. We've, Humphrey, we've got uh, Fiona in the studio with us today. Great to hear from you. Great to hear from you both. Hello, Fiona. Hello, Humphrey. Um, yes, we're going to talk about serious things too, um, not the Wentworth by-election and all that parliamentary <laughs> circus. Um, we go back to our regular topic of the state of the global economy and this time more specifically and with a little more difficulty um, Marx's notions of why capitalism keeps falling into heaps and however the politics of it are that it still survives. Yes Uh, well it took a beating last week didn't it? Pardon? The stock exchange. Well um, I mean it's I, mean, I sometimes think, oh, I'm going on about this again. And, <laughs> and then I go into the newsagent, and there on the front cover of The Economist is this graph and this headline that says, the next recession. And what it says about the next recession is what we said, you know, what we've been saying is that it's going to be worse than the last one. So what, I mean, this is the leading economic public journal not academic journal, but uh, this is the major thought piece for all of those people who try to run the capitalist system. And they're saying there's another one coming and it's going to be worse than the last one. So I feel we really have to focus on it and focus on why and the complications, because they are complicated, as to why Marx says these things can happen. So that's what we're going to have a that's what we're going to have a shot at. It is complicated, which is why it's a great it thing is complicated. that you're, you're able to put all of the notes up online for people. Yeah, I was I really uh, pleased that you're going to talk about this, but I read the stuff and I'm thinking, hmm, I'm glad you're going to take my hand and take me through it. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, there are some numbers in there and they're not difficult arithmetic, but I don't think you can do numbers on radio, can you? <laughs> I mean, how do I do that, I thought. But there are numbers involved. Now... Um, we mentioned the Wall Street, you know, situation as to what's as to what's happening there, um, and uh, the, the kind of people whose job it is to massage the egos of the of the stock market people, um, they're running around like headless chooks trying to say things like, "Oh well, yes, there are lots of problems, but they aren't all the same. Therefore, there is any systemic problem. Therefore, there's nothing to worry about." I mean, the very fact that you might think that there are all kinds of problems makes it even more likely that one of them will lead to becoming the tripwire and and spark all the others. But they have to come up with these cheery news, this grand, oh, we have to protect confidence, as if that was the most important thing. Well, we're going to go way beyond that uh, and have a look, as Marx did, as to how this can happen. And when it happened in 2008, of course, lots of people felt, oh, we've got to go back and read Marx's Capital again, because surely in there there's an answer. Now, they did this, 
And they looked and they said, oh, volume one's a thousand pages. The three volumes are 3,000 pages. <laughs> I haven't got time for that. What do I do? So there was a tendency, and I think there still is and always has been, to leap on one chapter in volume three. And the chapter in volume three has a pretty complicated title. And I want to spend a couple of minutes stressing every part of what the chap what, what that whole area is called. So there are three chapters and they come under one title. And the title is, and I'll go slowly, The Law of a Tendential Fall in the Rate of Profit. Now, we've got to be very careful here not to go trimming it because I've over the decades I've heard people who have been Marxists all their lives reduce that complicated statement the law of a tendential fall in the rate of profit, down to, oh, just the falling rate of profit. So the tendential law goes AWOL. What does tendential mean? Well, tendential means in these terms that there is, well, certainly there's a tendency for it to happen. Uh, and where people get puzzled is they think, well, if it's only a tendency, how can it be a law? Mm. Surely if it's a law, then it has to happen. Now... This, you know, I mean, I suppose... It's a bit like saying that when you're tilting, you've got a tendency to fall. Well, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but you are, may not. Yeah, well, exactly that. But that in any situation, and Marx keeps saying this over and over again about everything, all other things being equal. Ah. Hmm. ah. Now, if you think in those terms, yeah, well, you know, there is certainly a law that, you know, that... That, that things will happen in a particular way. And if you think of the natural sciences, there are laws, you know, what if, you know, if the temperature is this, then this will, then this consequence will happen. But what happens if the pressure changes? And so, oh, well, if the pressure changes, then, then you need more or less temperature for the thing to happen. So all other things being equal apply in all kinds of laws. But it does require a bit of hard thinking. You can't just say, oh, well, it's either this or that, and if it isn't this, then it isn't that, therefore, you know, this is going to follow. So what we've got to look at in what Marx is trying to you know, lead us to understand is that, yes, there is a tendency that this can happen, but it is not inevitable. And it can happen for all kinds of ways. Uh, there's not just one reason why it's going to happen. Uh, and he spends his time... Uh, trying to lead us to understand what these ways are. And this leads us, of course, into another you know, area which is pretty complicated if, you know, when, you, when, when you're first beginning to encounter it, and that is what we all know of as a, a dialectical way of looking at the world. Now, what Marx is saying is that capital has to expand has to keep on expanding. That's what distinguishes the capitalist system from previous economic systems. If it doesn't expand, then it really isn't, it isn't fulfilling what it has to do to be itself. Now, that's a whole other issue, but that's, that's, that's its starting point. But this very process of expanding is the thing that gives rise to the opposite. The expansion process is what makes the crisis inevitable. So you eat lots of sugar and then eventually you need to eat more and more because you can't get the taste of it. Or if you're a heroin addict, well, you have to have more of it. 
Yeah, well, you need more of it. And then, of course, this can lead to a terminal situation mm. or a major disease, whether it's diabetes or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So this, these circumstances of having to expand give rise to a set of circumstances, not just one, but all kinds of ways in which it can begin to express itself. Now, what we're talking about here, again, is to go back to the, the tendential law of the rate of profit to fall, we are dealing not with absolute profits because absolute profits can go up while the rate is beginning to fall. Yep. Okay. And it's important to understand what the difference between these two things is. You know, I mean, if, you, if, if you hear on the news that a corporation has made £2 billion in profit, you think, well, that's a lot of money. But if they've had to spend... 50 billion to get the 2 billion, they're losing money. Yeah, the, the, the rate of return is about 4% on that. And I mean, you could make more money. I mean, if you had 50 million, 50 billion, I mean, you could lend it out and get more than 4% back. Um, at 2% inflation as well, you're only making 2, you know, you're only making 2%. So that the absolute size is not in itself what's important. So that's why they started to bid on money instead of on production? Well, uh, yeah, no, not quite. I mean, there's uh. a step in there that relates back to this question of the system beginning to overexpand. Okay. That they expand and expand, and then they get to the point, we will get around to this, I hope, that the, that the opportunity to invest and to make money back isn't there. And at that point, they start to play with money and they enter into this fantasy, this illusionary world that you can make new money out of playing with money. You can certainly <laughs> make money out of the money that's there if you play with it, but you're not adding, you're not adding more value to the system. No, no, and everybody has to agree to the con. Well, up to a certain point. You know, if we, we mentioned this phrase before. It's a wonderful phrase. You've got to find... You have to find a greater fool, someone who's going to buy from you at a higher price than you have bought from somebody else. And at some point, like the housing market in Australia, this comes to an end. So, yeah, so we're after the rate of profit. And this involves us in looking at what Marx considers to be the way in which we should understand everything that's going on in the world. Now... One of the problems I find around the left sometimes is that people can't quite explain what's going on. So they say, oh, well, it's all very dialectical, <laughs> as if that were an explanation. Well, no, it isn't. Um, ex you know, when we think of things dialectically, this is a way of analysing them. It's not abracadabra that you pronounce over the situation to say, oh, that accounts for that. There is many more things going on. And indeed... If we look at the three chapters in Volume 3 that fall under the heading The Law of the Tendential Fall and the Rate of Profit, the next two chapters, the titles to them really give the game away. And I'll just read out what those two titles are. The first one is Counteracting Factors. And the second one is Development of the Law's Internal Contradictions. So clearly, Marx did not think that this law was going to operate without any kind of interruption or disturbance in itself. 
You've got, as he says, counteracting factors and the development of internal contradictions. So not just do you have the law operating as the rate of profit, you have these other things that are going on. Now, Marx wrote this in the 1860s, and capitalism has changed a great deal and developed all kinds of new ways of doing things in the 150 years since then. And some of these are the new counteracting factors, things that simply weren't there. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to say to yourself, how is it that the system survived 150 years of these things going on? Well, they too have come up with new ways of postponing the day of reckoning. Mm. And I just give you three recent examples, which are, you know people around the left are well aware of all of these, but I think we've got to see them in Marx's terms of counteracting factors. One of them, of course, since the 40s, is the enormous amount of spend spending that's gone into the armaments industry. That's one. And then there's consumer credit. Um, for, you know, for the likes of us, it simply wasn't there um, before the 1950s. Um, you know. You, 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 you kind of paid things off before you got them rather than the other way around. Oh, and you were a morally good person if you had no uh, debts. Well, indeed. Indeed you were. Um, uh, but that's all changed now. I mean, the whole notion of what you've got to do to be a good citizen is to be up to your ears in debt. That's right. And the other thing that's happened, and this is the one that kind of happens behind our back because it's not something that, you know, that, that all of us see, is that... The turnover time for machinery has become much shorter. You know, if you go back to Marx's time, you could make a big engine and you'd expect it to go for 50 or 100 years. Now, the latest technologies, and I'm not just talking about out there in, you know, anti-social media land, um, but talking about the machines that actually make things, you know, three to five years, and someone's made, you know, one that works more efficiently, Make That's more exactly things. Right. Oh, even, I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but even houses aren't expected to last for longer than 10 years. Well, my parents built a fibro, you know, a fibro and um, house up in Queensland, a fibro on the inside, and there was weatherboard on the outside and a fibro roof. That was 1949, and it's as solid, and concrete stumps, and it's as solid as it was yeah. when it went up. But nothing. I mean, I bought a, an apartment in 1996. I mean, I don't know how, you know, it hasn't fallen down. Um, but, Still there. You know, I certainly don't expect it, you know, to have the kind of resale value. Anyway, I'm not going to be here to find that out. No, so no, I don't no, have to no, worry no, about it. Yeah, but yeah. as you say, all of those things are turning up. And the machines to make the, the things that go into houses, they're the things that you know, are turning over much faster. Now, why that's important is that that's where the rate of profit comes in. Because what is the rate of profit? Well, it is the profit you take, you know, well, you know, we'll just say for the point of illustration that the amount of profit comes out at 100 units. But to earn that, you've had to put out, say, 400 units. So in this case, you put 100 over 400 and your rate of profit is 25%. Now, what happens to you if, if in this, what you've got to put out is not only for the raw materials and for the wages, but every three to five years, you've got to buy a whole new set of machinery. So that a big part, a larger part now, of what it costs to produce anything is in these turnover times. Now, this is counterbalanced to some extent 
because they are finding ways of making the machines uh, in a less expensive way. So you have these counterbalancing forces there too. Yes, you turn them over faster, but the mere fact you're turning them over faster means that the people who are making them are learning how to make them more cheaply because they too, and this is another thing we hope to get around to, another important element is this is the competition between the corporations. Um, that that in the production of these things, and, you know, and we can see this in a way which we all experience, um, is the competition between the mobile phone producers or, or the computer producers. You know, that we're now, what, every 12 months, every six months, mm. there's a whole new um, thing, set of things out there, and they are learning to make these at a, at a faster rate. I have to throw in here that one of the problems in the New York Stock Exchange at the moment is that so many of these parts come from mainland China. That's right. That if there's a tariff war, then the cost of these are going to go up. And the high-tech industries in America, the five big high-tech firms now dominate the, the whole of the economy. All of the big manufacturing and making firms like General Motors and Exxon, they used to dominate. None of them are in the top five anymore. So that what happens in the high-tech industry has a big effect, not just on the stock market, but throughout everything else um, and employment levels and spending levels and everything else throughout the entire society. Now, why might the rate of profit go up or down? And we've got to see that it can go up as well as down. Not just the absolute can go up, but the rate can. Now, we all think about, you know, because Marx writes in these terms, about the rate of profit tending to fall. So we'll start with that. Now, if, if as I say... The workers get organised and they get stroppy and they're strong enough and we're strong enough to get a wage increase across the whole society, then this is clearly going to add to the cost of production. So even if the amount of profit stays the same at 100, the wages will go up, say, from, you know, you know the bit the wages want will just, you know, will make this simple for us, go from 400 in total for every cost up to 500. So you've now got 100 profit over 500 cost. So the rate of profit's gone down from 25 to 20%. That's the easy bit uh, to understand. Now, the other thing that's happening here uh, at the same time is that when these new machines are coming in and the pressure that, the, that, that wage increases have is what the employer tries to do is to say, okay, we'll get rid of the workers. That's we'll right. replace the workers with, with machine. machines that will produce even more and this will also mean that we'll be producing more and each of them will cost, or there will be a lower unit cost and therefore we'll be able to compete against the other capitalists. So you've got the two things. In capitalism always, you've got the class struggle and wages and... Um, going on at what level, and that's a continuing problem that capitalists have to cope with. But at the same time, they've got to fight off each other. And that means that they are driven to think we've got to get a bigger share of all the sales that are out there. And the way to do that is to produce more. And in fact, okay, we can expect perhaps to get 35% of all the sales. We'll just make up that number. But to get that, 
we're probably going to have to make 10 or 20% more items to make sure that we're in position everywhere uh, so that we're not running short when there's a demand in one area, we can have it. So there's a drive in here, and this is the phrase many people will know, this is part of the drive to overproduction. Um, but it is not just in the consumer end, and this is the other very important thing to understand. People sometimes think that, well, the reason that the capital system falls over is that workers don't get paid the full value of, of what we produce. That's certainly true. And therefore, the firms make more, but we can't buy it. Therefore, there's overproduction of the commodities. And that's all true. But behind that is a more important overproduction. And that's the overproduction of the machines that make the commodities. And that's the bit we don't see. Because, you know, in our daily lives, few of us are involved in those kinds of activities. We may be involved in the making of them. So what you're saying is there's an overinvestment? There's an overinvestment, excess capacity in the production system, not just excess of the units that are up for sale. And, the, and, and this is tied to the fact that uh, also that capitalism has to expand constantly. Constantly. So the and, people who are behind this, um, the reason why I'm hurrying this up is yeah, because yeah, we've got hardly any time. Yeah, that the, the uh, people behind this must be in like at the uh, uh, careering train. They actually don't know what's going to happen. Well, they well they have some idea what's going to happen, but partly because they can't face up to the facts of their exploitative system, they never get a. Yeah, that's the advantage that a Marxist has. We can see their system much more clearly than they can see theirs. And that's what Marx offers us. And that's why it's important. Yeah, here we are. If we are moving into a, another recession worked than the last one, it's the duty of people who are activists around the left to make every effort to understand how this can happen. Uh, and that's what we're struggling to, to do always. But we have, a, we have some advantages over them is it is not in our interest to confuse ourselves about the exploitative nature of the system and about the chaotic nature of how the system actually manages to survive. I mean, it survives by, when things go bad for it, if it's got the clout, and this is the last point we always need to make, if it's got the political clout, then it can drive down the amount of excess capacity in the system. But this normally means sacking lots of people. And as we've said before on the program, at the moment, they're not going to do that. I mean, we've seen the closure of the car industry in Australia. That's one instance of the removal of part of the excess capacity in the automobile industry. Oh, we have to stop. We, we haven't have got enough stop. time. Okay. I, I'll but tell you what. One vital thing always, yeah, yeah. it's a class struggle issue, that the system won't collapse because the economy collapses. They've got the state, and yeah. that's the thing that holds their system in place for them. I'll tell so you what, that was riveting. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. A bit mate. of a surprise. Okay, see you next time. Oh, he makes it. It takes your breath away. He does. I, I was thinking about the, um, the environmental impact when he was talking about the constant production of new machine, new things, new machines, um, that, well, that would have a consequential massive impact on the environment and the yeah. waste. And, and we um, really don't have enough time for that. No, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. No, but I mean, in uh, real in, life, we don't have enough time for that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we, we, we really have to come to the end of the program. We, we had a good program today. We uh, heard from Robert Dick. 
Costello from the Peter Norman uh, Social Justice Forum about how to contribute to a better future. We heard from uh, Jane Carrow and Anne Mann, two feminists who spoke at the recent um, conference, uh, sorry, public lecture um uh, uh, on Me Too and the Forgotten Feminism organised by La Trobe University. Yep, we heard from uh, Fear Go for Pensioners, uh, Kevin, uh, This is the Week That Was, and we followed it up with a riveting discussion with uh, Humphrey McQueen. And we're going to go out with One Day, Died Pretty, and uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Thanks for coming in, Fiona. Good morning, everyone. Is that what you listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.